0: The following audio is via a Skype call.
1: Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off.
0: TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday.
2: I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell.
0: Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour and doggone happy to be there. Thanks for using a Q-tip, by the way, and the guy who always keeps us on an even keel. Every Friday, this guy just goes through the labors of Hercules to make sure we stay on the air. I'm talking about bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you, Benny? Hey, doing very well, Gary. One quick little thing. Your little list. I think you're listing on me a little bit. Suzanne, Suzanne's right up against the uh, the old microphone. You're still a little distant there. Can I bring you in a little bit? I want to bring you in. Part the time of- is 10.04 yeah. Pacific time. How about that? Better? Eh, not really. But, I mean, I could work with her. Right. You know what I mean? But I think Suzanne sounds like she's right on top of hers. You know what I mean?
2: Okay. Yeah. That yeah. sounds good. All right. We'll work <laughs> at it at the
0: the first break. But you're still there. I tell you, by by our fingertips, we hold on here. Thank you for letting me know, Benny, yep. and uh, we'll work on it. So life is good. We're back here. It's, we're getting into this groove after some recent travels, Suzanne, and I'm delighted that we can be
2: working with Benny and having people on in some cases that we haven't talked to for a while. We have not talked to today's guest for a while. However, in our uh, we're in our 13th year on air, and in that period of time, we've had our guest today on nine times. So he goes into double digits today, which puts him in a whole new category of guest. Anybody who's been on ten times is is golden, and this is his tenth time. Why don't I give this man his mad props? What do you do? John E. Welshans, the Ramananda, is a highly respected contemporary spiritual teacher who lectures and leads meditation courses throughout North America. He has been a practitioner of mindfulness meditation and various forms of yoga for more than 40 years. In addition to his book, One Soul, One Love, One Heart, The Sacred Path to Healing All Relationships, he's also the author of Awakening from Grief. Finding the Way Back to Joy, and When Prayers Aren't Answered, two books that emerged from nearly 40 years of experience helping people deal with dramatic life change and loss. John Welshons has studied world religions throughout his life. He holds a B.A. in Comparative Religions from the University of South Florida and an M.A. in History of Religions from Florida State University so that must mean he can't figure out whether he's a hurricane or a Seminole. He has traveled and studied extensively in India and is a gifted counselor and teacher who has worked closely with Ram Das and trained with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Much more to be said, but we want to talk to the man himself. So welcome for the 10th time, John Welshans. How are you today?
1: Oh, Suzanne, I'm just great, thank you, and it's great to be with you and Gary.
2: Wonderful,
0: Ramananda John E. Welshans. I like that. There, There is the dignity of your station in life and all of the comparative religion that you have studied and internalized and synthesized, John, that's that's a life's work right there.
1: Yeah, and I just have to correct something and you're obviously using a bio from 10 years ago, Suzanne, because it's now, I've been doing this stuff over 50 years.
2: Well, I was oh. trying to make you younger than you are, John. Oh, that's
0: very sweet, we don't but want we to, have to be honest. Don't,
2: you know, we don't want to say we're bringing on this old dude. So, yeah, I, no, we especially wish
1: to avoid that. I well, started in left. nursery school.
2: Ah, that, so really, it. that was
0: it. <laughs> okay. Uh, John, I... I'm, I'm happy to know that there's some other guy out there with a lot of years. You have more than me into the study of, of comparative religion. That's what they call the department where I went to school at Cal State University Fullerton. My degree from back in the day, it was called religious studies and there was uh-huh. a compar- it was an opportunity to study religion comparatively and at a secular commuter campus, I thought that was pretty special and I'm glad for the experience. Now they call it the Department of Comparative Religion. And wouldn't you know, of all the things for me to associate this with, I'm thinking of the song Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. We all know it. And there's a line there where uh, Mick Jagger sings about watching television. A man comes on the television uh, telling him uh, more and more, right? And then he Uh finally concludes, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. (laughs) I always laugh whenever I hear that. And I think of that in terms of, of comparative religion. I have my soul journey, you have yours, Suzanne has hers, the people listening to us have their own attitude about spirituality, but we always wonder about those people who don't smoke the same cigarettes as me. And that's where we have breakdowns in communication and misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, that being, and that being the case, I mean, You go off into the forest with Ram Dass, you're playing at a pretty high level, and then you bring that back to your daily world, bring it back to New Jersey or on your travels. And I wonder many times, do you communicate, do you feel, John, that you communicate the essence of what you have learned and are learning to people who are too easily caught up in their own turmoil on a daily basis?
1: Wow, what a question. (laughs) Well, I hope so. (laughs) But it's really a challenge. You know, I think uh, in some ways it's becoming more and more of a challenge all the time. Uh, In other ways, um, you know, I see more and more people wanting to learn meditation um, basically because they're desperate, because they've tried everything else and, you know, it hasn't worked. And um, there's so much suffering and agitation and, and uh, despair and depression, and um, people are looking for a way out. But unfortunately, the culture has taught them to look for something quick and easy. And uh, that's an impediment sometimes. I was just talking with a friend the other day, and we were just noticing that in many of the yoga schools around the area where I live, um Yoga classes used to be two hours, and then they became 90 minutes, and then they were cut to 60 minutes. And uh, there's a new wave of 45-minute yoga classes and 30-minute meditation classes. And, you know, my, my meditation classes are two hours because I know that if people are just sticking a toe in the water, it's not enough, really. So... Um, but I, I think it's an indication that while there is an apparent openness to transformative teachings, um, there's also a barrier in that we want it, we want it to be easy, we want it to be fast, and we don't wanna to have to work to get it.
0: <laughs> so uh, It's tricky. I love that. Suzanne's got something to say here. I'll just put a bow on my own viewpoint here. I am immediately suspicious of any religion that comes prepackaged. Easy to use, just tear off the cellophane and you got yourself a new point of view and you're not only happier, you're saved. I'm always suspicious of that sort of thing because it doesn't seem to require much inner work.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, there are traditions in, um, you know, some of the ancestors, of what's now known as fundamentalist Christianity are rooted in perspectives that say, you know, we're all sinners, so there's no sense doing anything, because anything you do is going to be a sin. So you just turn your life over to God, and that's all you have to do. And I think, boy, that's really, boy, if it was that easy, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? But that's not been my experience. And... uh You know, I I actually wanted to point out 50 years of meditation practice because I think that that's um, significant in the sense that if you're really going with it wholeheartedly, um, it is something that will continue to evolve and continue to captivate you throughout your lifetime. But it is work. You know, it's always work. (laughs) It's the lovely work most of the time, but uh, it's work.
2: John, do you ascribe to the idea that our difficult relationships are also our best spiritual teachers? And there's a reason I'm asking this question. but what is your what is your top line thinking about that?
1: Well, absolutely, you know, I think that, um, uh, My friends, Stephen and Andrea Levine, who had one of the most um, magnificent marriages I've ever witnessed, um, used to say, relationship is the most difficult yoga there is. And um, to me, what that means, and that's really what my book, One Soul, One Love, One Heart, is all about. um, I originally had titled it The Yoga of Relationship. And uh, the publisher didn't like that title, so we changed it. but that really is to me still the title of the book. And what it suggests is that re- relationships are really where we have to look at ourselves you know where another per- person is in essence mirroring back to us um, who we are. And we like to go around thinking, that I'm who I think I am. (laughs) You know, sometimes in relationship we get to see, well, that may not be who we are, or that may be not the way someone else perceives us. So um, the short form of the story is that I think uh, relationship can be a magnificent way of stretching us, helping us to see where we're tight and contracted and uh, inflexible, just like Hatha Yoga does to the body. Um, So yeah, and I think that the difficult relationships are the ones that are really juicy, because um, uh, they really point out to us the places where we're caught. And um, I always like to say that taking a difficult relationship as a spiritual teaching doesn't mean um, surrendering to something that's abusive. Because maybe the teaching is, how do I extricate myself from this relationship, rather than allowing myself to be abused? Or in extreme cases, what do I do as an individual and as a society to restrain this person from harming others? That's part of the teaching sometimes as well. So um, it's a very rich subject.
2: Well, it is, and I I asked the simpler question first, but... My my uh, intuition tells me that you may have already answered the question that I really wanted to talk to you about. We aren't making this easy for you on your 10th visit, by the way. You're an old <laughs> hat at this. So <laughs> we're, we're bringing out the hard questions today. Uh-huh. Good. And, and, Good. and this is where I wanted to go with this. Uh, I have heard that our most difficult relationships are our spiritual teachers for the reasons that you outlined. It, when you're in a difficult relationship, then you come up against yourself. You come up against who am I, and it, and then you you work through whatever that is. You get to see the good and the bad. The thing is, when you have a good relationship, when I have a relationship with Gary, and it's a good relationship then i get to see myself as being a good and loving person when i am in a, a negative relationship then i i see this divide between the physical world and the mental slash spiritual world where i can think of myself as being a good person and a spiritual person and I have somebody like Gary that says yeah you're right you are a good person and then I come up against this mirror image where somebody you know looks at me and thinks I'm not so good you know maybe I am mean <laughs> or evil or impatient or or uh, arrogant or what you know whatever that is and what we're trying to do is get out of those relationships that's negativity if we're trying mm-hmm. to to be the the change that we want to see if we're trying to be loving spiritual people and then all of a sudden we're we're in a relationship that is all about the negativity that's where i have a problem because we can we can think all kinds of good spiritual thoughts, but when the rubber hits the road and somebody looks at you cross-eyed and says you're doing it all wrong, then it uh, you know the reality sets in and it feels like the the energy goes negative. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I you know I kind of struggle with that. The difference between what our thinking is about something versus what it is physically, and they can be very different. I like how you said maybe it's to get out of a bu- an abusive relationship, but then you have to ask your quest- the question if you're always running away from, from things that appear to be negative. Does this make any sense, John?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's explaining very articulately a very complex um, challenge that we human beings face in relationships. So, you know, I think of um, the other night in my uh, meditation class, um, we were talking about seeing the world through the eyes in which we're judging. And um, I was remembering that a teacher of mine many years ago, Emmanuel, who was a being who was channeled through a friend of mine named Pat Rodegast. Emmanuel was a very beautiful side teacher. And um He used to say, um, whenever you hear the words wrong or shouldn't arise in your mind, you're headed for suffering. And I thought, that's very interesting. Now, he also was always teaching about how we learn to love everything, and that everything is love. Everything is a manifestation of love. And then I remember the Course in Miracles saying there's only two states only two states of being for a human being to be in. There's either love or there's fear. And um, so our spiritual teachings are all about how do we love? And wonderful book by uh, a fellow named Jerry Jampolsky many years ago called Love is Letting Go of Fear. So... I think what's really helpful in relationships that are difficult is seeing what it is in us that they trigger um, that gives rise to fear. In other words, if I'm interacting with someone and I'm upset, um, what is it that I'm fearful about? What is it that I'm hurt about? What is it in the relationship that is causing me to, to contract and close my heart. That's really the challenge, and that can be a great teaching that um, has significant implications across all of our experience of life, so that whenever we look at the world and we say, this is wrong, this shouldn't be the way it is, <laughs> we are placing ourselves, in essence, at war with the world. And um, that's why in in the Buddhist teachings, uh, in our meditation practices, we're really endeavoring to let go of our judging mind so that we see that the world doesn't necessarily have to be characterized as good or evil. It just is the way it is. So if you're in relationship, and this covers the field of relationships from um, you know, someone who lives next door who makes a lot of noise who you have difficulty with, to, um, you know, a world leader who causes your skin to crawl. <laughs> you know? um, it's all useful to look at and say, what is it in this person, in this relationship, that's causing me fear? What am I afraid of? And also, what am I sad about? And... Those are really like the primary uh, emotional states that are that they wind up getting expressed as anger because anger is the way our mind grabs for power when it feels powerless. So um, my perspective on it is really to say, how do I love everyone, and yet do whatever needs to be done to stop human beings from harming one another, from causing suffering for one for one another. Not to say it's wrong. <laughs> it's a tricky juxtaposition of, of states of consciousness, really, because it's living in a state where everything is perfect the way it is, and then understanding the part of the perfection is that a lot of things on this earth make my heart hurt. And that's perfect, too. And then what do I do about that, you know?
2: John, if we we have all of these philosophies and religions and spiritual teachings that are all about how to love, Mm -hmm. do you think that something is missing if we're not taught how to fear or how to be sad.
1: Well, um, I I would rephrase your question, which is a wonderful question. I would rephrase it as saying, we're not taught how to work with fear. We're not taught how to work with sadness. We just know in this culture how to push it away.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, And And, I guess that's where I was going with it. That's something we want to get away from. But if we knew how to grieve, if we knew how to be sad, if we knew how to be in the presence of fear, then experiencing that fully, I think, would then put us more at choice than just trying to get away from it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really then understanding. Like, the whole issue of anger has always been fascinating to me. I grew up with an alcoholic father who was so angry all the time when he he drank. He was the nicest guy in the world if he was sober, but when he drank, he was a raging demon. And uh, it really was an uncomfortable situation to grow up in, and led me to really question, what is anger? What's the root cause of anger? So when I was studying with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who, you know, was really the inspiration in many ways behind the hospice movement in America, and she had the five stages of dying. The second stage was anger. And she said to our class when I was studying with her, she said, I want you to understand that all anger is an expression of grief. And we were all confused. No, we don't understand that. And, you know, somebody said, well, you mean the anger... Someone feels if someone they love dies or if they get a bad diagnosis for themselves. She said, no, I mean all anger. And somebody else said, well, you know, Dr. Ross, we have a fight-or-flight response. Isn't that, you know, sort of a natural reaction? And she said, yes, but that only lasts for five seconds. And then all the rest is choice. So I looked at that, and I thought, how fascinating— uh, and I had a lot of interesting interactions with Ram Dass about anger also that I put in One Soul, One Love, One Heart, I wrote about. And um, it was interesting to realize that she was saying anger is not a primary emotion for human beings. That The primary emotion, if you examine anger, underneath it is always fear and sadness. So that's really an interesting thing to get to the source of it. And as you were saying and, you know, we were exploring, this culture has been very inept at doing that. You know, this culture has basically said, express your anger, let it out, get in touch with it, which has its place, yes. Get in touch with it, but if you express it indiscriminately, it just creates more injury, more suffering.
2: We, we often hear that people from the New Jersey area are well in touch with their anger. <laughs> <laughs> John, Boy,
1: Susan, we get a bad reputation.
0: Well, the thing of it is, Suzanne is actually quoting you. <laughs> yeah. oh, I know. When you were in I Seattle, know. you said you got a big laugh out of that when you were in East-West Bookshop in Seattle, and you said New Jersey people are really in touch with their anger. We all <laughs> we got right. that because you have the <laughs> pop culture stereotypes for one thing. Uh huh.
1: Well, you but know, it's a really yeah. interesting thing that um, that you could say that's true. I mean, my experience is that um, you know I fly around the country a lot, and um, I land in airports like seattle or portland or san francisco you know and and it's just there's a different atmosphere i come back to new jersey it's sort of like oh boy here we are (laughs) back in the thick of it
0: and when that happens we've got a couple of minutes before our break when that happens john you're back in the thick of it do you find yourself challenged to have the emotional detachment to not stay in the thick of it, even though, in a manner of speaking, it's the lingo that's spoken all around you.
1: Yes. I mean, I've really—I've found that to be a a very um, significant teaching in my life. That, um, you know, and I remember Ram Dass saying to me years ago, he said, don't live in New Jersey, live someplace nice. (laughs) <laughs> I said, New Jersey is not nice, <laughs> you know. And it, uh, he was suggesting that I move to Hawaii or something like that, as he did, you know. And but there's right. something about this atmosphere that I find very useful, and I still am am being reminded over and over again that. People everywhere
0: respond to love. And people they everywhere do respond to love. love. Yes, yeah. it's, it's true. And I'll tell you something. I, I take Ram Das's point, but you know, I've been—I made four trips to Hawaii four years in a row back in the '90s. I'd love to go back and see what the place looks like now. But I'll tell you, uh-huh. John, uh, you go to Hawaii. There, they have their own pressures. They also have their own way. Take, a, for example, Hō'oponopono, the healing ritual, a ceremony Mm -hmm. where people reconcile their issues and get rid of their anger. If you think about it, if you're on Oahu, any of the islands, but if you're on Oahu with about a million people there sharing it with you of various ethnicities, many different backgrounds, and you're all out there about 2,000 or so miles out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you have to find a way to make it work because what are you going to do otherwise? You would resort to the old tribal warfare and that doesn't work very well.
1: Right, right. Where are you going to go?
0: <laughs> so we look for say, where are you going to go? Into the drink. So when we look for uh, a place that's nice, I have indulged that kind of whimsical thinking many 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 times in my over the course of my life and i looked at it as a situation where yes there are places i would rather be at any given time that's true but what am i doing with the time and circumstances i've got now is the moment to practice
1: exactly exactly this is it you know as i mentioned my friend emmanuel earlier uh, i remember him once saying if you're ever wondering where you're supposed to be just look down and see where your feet are
0: i love that that's those are <laughs> words to live by
1: <laughs> you know it's very it's because so many of us are thinking oh you know i wasn't meant to live here i was meant to be in some beautiful place and i can tell you you know new jersey is quite beautiful Uh, We've had a spectacular fall. There are parts of New Jersey that are, you know, farmlands. And, you know, the bad reputation it gets is, I think, primarily because the parts of New Jersey that are thickly populated are the most densely populated state in the country. So it's a lot of people in a big hurry with a lot of other people in their way. And they get agitated. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm here to just say, wait a minute, let's slow down a little bit. What's the rush? And, you know, I see how this culture is pushing people to move faster, to get more done, to achieve more, to accomplish more. And a lot of people are just really struggling to just pay the bills. And um, we have to learn to find a way to enjoy life no matter what our external circumstances
0: are. There's got to be some still point at the center and the vast majority of human beings do not know how to find that. That's where a guy like you comes in so handy because, man, I mean, when you look at all the demands placed on us, and a lot of them simultaneously, it's all you can do to retain your sanity, let alone find a place of peace that allows you that that expanding inner space in which to move, to move and have your being. That can be a genuine, not just genuine, but a superb accomplishment over the course of one's lifetime. And it seems like over a period of many, many years, it becomes an ongoing act of self-liberation.
1: Right, right. Well, and it's interesting, too. You know, I began, um, I think, the first chapter of One Soul, One Love, One Heart, with a story that's a classic story in India of a yogi who lived up in the Himalayas and uh, practiced very deep meditation and yogic practices for, like, 35 years. And people used to go and do homage to him and sit and have his darshan and be beautiful. And one day after 35 years, he came down into the local town, and in the midst of the shopping bazaar, someone inadvertently bumped into him and the yogi turned around and started screaming obscenities at him <laughs> and the point of the story is you know sometimes you can put yourself in an environment where it's easier to be peaceful but are you really peaceful if you come out of there and something in the world interacting with other human beings triggers your anger
0: You know, well there you th- go I love that. I love that, John. And we're going to take a break. But let me get in this one little anecdote. The Western equivalent to that from way, way back in B.C. days was Zeno of Sidium there who founded the Stoicism school. Classic Stoicism owes its origins to Zeno of Sidium. And he taught people a calm acceptance of life and to make good use of your reasoning faculty, and to order your life in such a way as to embrace virtue, unless whatever you're doing is indifferent, just like feeding yourself and hygiene and all of that. But any purposeful act ought to participate in virtue. And he taught this and had many, many adherents. It was like the hottest thing in town in Athens when he was teaching this and subsequent teachers. But in the case of xenocidium, it is said that after teaching one day he stubbed his big toe on a rather large rock whereupon he went home and hanged himself
1: holy mackerel.
0: <laughs> yeah. so yeah, i think pretty you get
1: response to stubbing your toe
0: <laughs> you know uh, you know i mean it something <laughs> like that and i go so Even those who teach others how to live and bless them for doing so, they make great contributions. There are times when we're all a little too tightly wound and we have to make ourselves our client or patient. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well said, yeah. And with that, let's go ahead and take our break. Half time as it is, we are talking with John E. Welshans, the Ramananda and we have more questions for him after this break, so stay with us, and thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk Game 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.
0: Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy, just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. The holiday gift-giving season soon will be right around the corner. It's not too early to fuel the open road dreams of special people in your life with a subscription to American Road magazine. With exciting features, quality writing, and beautiful photography in every issue, American Road makes a perfect gift for road-tripping moms and dads, gallivanting grandparents, adventurous aunts and uncles. Maybe that special friend will enjoy it, too. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com, click subscribe, and for a limited time, you can enter the code KKNW to receive 25% off your subscription. Where do you find this offer? AmericanRoadMagazine.com i'm gary mance i'm suzanne mitchell we're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music politics
2: and pop culture and you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation mance and mitchell is boomer hq friday and saturday
0: mornings at 10 on 11:50 a.m kknw
2: your home for alternative talk in seattle and western washington
0: Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk, 1150.
2: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Thank you, Beatles, for Within You, Without You. Is that it?
0: I always change it. Within You, Without You, and I always change that lyric to we were talking about the space between our ears. Ah,
2: okay. We're I like ta- George's
0: way better, <laughs> though.
2: Yeah. Uh <laughs> Johnny Welshons is our special guest this and that's hour. That's John
0: E., not Johnny Welshans. Hey, ho!
2: Oh, no, it's not Johnny. In Jersey. It's Johnny. It's John. Jersey, John E. E stands for everything, something like that. <laughs> and he is with us this hour. We are talking us some good smack here, but people want to know what your books are, where they can get them, what is your website. I know you have multiple things going on, John. This is a good time for you to tell our listeners how they can connect with you.
1: Oh, great. Well, uh, the website is onesoulonelove.com, spelled out, O-N-E-S-O-U-L-O-N-E-L-O-V-E.com. And um, I am teaching right now, mostly locally in New Jersey for the balance of the year, so I can stay home. And then in... um, 2020, I'll be going to California in uh, uh, February and March. I know I'm at Unity of Tustin in March, March 12th, I believe it is. And um, the 2020 calendar is just evolving right now, but my schedule is all on the uh, uh, website under John Welshon's schedule. And um, the books are Awakening from Grief, Finding the Way Back to Joy, and uh, When Prayers Aren't Answered, and the third one is One Soul, One Love, One Heart, Sacred Path to Healing All Relationships, and they're all available on Amazon uh, or ordered through any local bookstore, and uh, they're all published by New World Library, which also is the publisher of Eckhart Tolle's The Power of
2: Now. Thank you, John. I appreciate Thank that. You. We Thank were you. we were talking a little bit earlier about um, difficult relationships being our spiritual teachers, and so one of the things Gary and I were talking about in advance of the show was we wanted to get your take on if some of these difficult relationships perhaps have been agreed upon in advance in soul contracts or reincarnation, and I'd like you to speak to that a little bit, if you would.
1: Ah, great. (laughs) Well, um, you know, again, that's a a tricky area in the sense that um, I remember as a teenager, and I was starting to find my way into metaphysical teachings, spiritual teachings, and uh, somebody presented that concept to me, and I was, you know, talking about how difficult it had been growing up with my parents, and uh, this person said, well, you know, you chose them. And I looked at this person, and I said, I couldn't possibly hate myself enough to have chosen (laughs) those (laughs) parents. And why? You know, so it's, you know, and, and it also ties in with something I was discussing recently as well, which is that we in the West tend to see karma as punishment. And it really isn't. It, karma, what's called karma, is just the balancing of opposites. It's just almost a mechanical law. So it isn't like you do something that you're going to get punished for it. It's basically like, well, if you do one thing, you have to experience its opposite. And um, that's a deep subject. But basically, I do find it useful at times to use as one perspective, in a variety of perspectives about relationship, that yes, there's nothing that happens that isn't really part of our karmic circumstance, you know, that it's... It's predetermined. It isn't predetermined that it's going to make us miserable. It's just going to happen. Whether or not it makes us miserable is a whole other issue. So, uh, and that's really what we've been talking about, is how to be in difficult circumstances and difficult relationships without getting caught in anger and fear. So, yeah, I think that um, ultimately... It's all happening lawfully, and, you know, whether we see it as I chose this or if that statement is too um, discontinuous with our current experience, you know, we can sort of set it aside. I don't think it matters either way. You know, it, it's really, the real issue is this is what's happening now, this is what's present in my life now, and how do I work with it in the most conscious way?
2: It has been suggested more than once from people that we have talked to who are um, very in tuned with other um, spiritual realms that if we wanted to just float on a cloud somewhere, that that's a choice, but that we don't come to earth to do that. That very few people come here for an easy life. They come here to experience life in all of its fullness. And so there are parts that we like, you know, we like falling in love, you know, we like having a a good meal that tastes good and smells good and and is, is nice and warm and nourishing. But then there are the things that we don't like, and yet when we choose this incarnation, we, we're choosing all of it. We, we don't segregate out and say, well, I want a good life, but I don't want anything bad to happen to me because that's not the nature of being human and living on the earth. Does that make sense right. in, in your philosophy?
1: Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I found very useful is looking at the part of the Buddhist teaching in which he offered what he called the five hindrances. The five hindrances are the primary states of mind that separate us from our true nature, which would be, you know, in our true nature we experience, or we are, love and peace and joy. But what prevents us from feeling that? Well, the Buddha said, Number one was lust and greed. Now, very interesting that he combined those two. You know, it was almost like, this is one thing, lust and greed. The second one is hatred and ill will. The third one is agitation of mind and body. The fourth is sloth and torpor, or laziness. And the fifth is doubt. And the doubt. Really, being referring to our doubt that our spiritual practices really work. No, nothing like that. But then he said, these are, in essence, the admissions criteria for coming to planet Earth. So, this is just who we've chosen to hang out with right now while we're in human form on Earth. And, you know, if you looked at it that way and said, okay, you can only come to Earth if you've got lust and greed, hatred and ill will, agitation of mind and body, sloth and torpor and doubt. Fascinating! (laughs) Because that really helps to counteract the the thinking in the mind that says, this is wrong, or it shouldn't be the way it is. The Buddha is saying, this is exactly the way it is. I mean, I started to absorb that teaching, and I thought, well, Earth is really just like a giant reform school. <laughs> you know, We're all a bunch of delinquents who come here to get straight. And, uh, you know, which, which is an Eastern twist on the idea of original sin. So it isn't an original sin. It's like you're just bad, and there's nothing you can do about it. In the East, it's like, yes, you come with all of this baggage, but you come here to get free of it. That's a whole different thing.
0: I also think it's very easy to get caught up in other people's games, John, and I'll tell you what I mean. In fact, I've got a good example. You're going to be at Unity of Tustin, which is great. Suzanne knows Tustin pretty well. I think you had a relative that lived there for a while. She did. And Tustin is right next door to a sizable town called Santa Ana, California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I went down to Santa Ana College, in, I wanna say it was 1975. I just decided I'd make the trip from Fullerton down there, battle the traffic, get in there, because at the community college there, none other than John Dean was making a speech. He was uh, not long out of the Hooskow, and there's John Dean making his address and taking some questions. Some people were sympathetic to his plight, other people attacked him, and I came away thinking, I'm not sure I could really be friends with this guy, but by the same token, he's been through a lot. I had some degree of empathy. I bring him up Mm -hmm. to you, John, because if you look at a man like John Dean, you're looking at a guy who is a young man. I mean, he was working in the White House as a young man. And it seems Mm -hmm. to me, looking back on all that, I was around for Watergate. When I look back on it, it seems to me that John Dean got caught up in somebody else's game. Mm And once you do that and you're playing for the highest stakes, it's Mm -hmm. very easy to lose yourself in the process until something jars you out of this dream world or this surreality that you're in Mm -hmm. having to deal with life circumstances, the likes of which I know will never be mine to face there, but that somebody did and lived to tell the tale causes me to admire them and also feel feel bad that they had to go through that. That was a big lesson to learn for John Dean. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, all those things are, you know, you're bringing up another very interesting dimension of relationship, and that is, um, uh, you know, I'm always fascinated that there is uh, such an emphasis in most really um, credible spiritual traditions. There's an emphasis on forgiveness, And I think it's another area where we get confused in relationships because, just in the same way that karma isn't punishment, forgiveness doesn't imply that we approve of or condone acts of unkindness or cruelty or dishonesty. It means that we let go of the burden of being upset about what someone else has done, you know, because at one level, it's their karma may have affected us but we make the choice as to whether or not to hang on to the resentment. And you see somebody like John Dean, who years later is able to, in essence, at least endeavor to be a more positive influence in the culture, because he's been through it. He saw how it happened. He saw how you get sucked into other people's games and uh, how, in essence you can wind up selling your soul to perpetuate this thing that you've invested in. You know, it's like a religious cult. Um, And I was just earlier today having a, a conversation with a friend about religious cults and cult thinking, cult behavior. It's very hard when people have taken a strong stand against perhaps their their families' um, advice and preferences and so on, and they've said, no, I'm joining up with this cult. And uh, it's very hard to back out of that. You know, it, there's, it's, there's so much shame that the mind wanting to protect itself, and, rather than say, I guess I was wrong, <laughs> will just invest itself more strongly in whatever the game is. And um, that's a very interesting thing. So it's interesting to, to be an observer of that, because I find myself having also been alive when Watergate was going on and being really enraptured by the whole process. And I was watching the day that John Dean sort of spilled the beans, you know? and uh, which ultimately led to Nixon's downfall. And at the time, I, you know, I remember I was probably, let's see, the 70s, I was, you know, in my early 20s, and I was thinking, what a slime ball, you know? And now I look at him, and I say, as you just pointed out, Gary, wow, he's been through a lot, and he knows something directly and firsthand that you and I don't know, necessarily. How does that happen? How do you get sucked in to something like that, if you're a an intelligent decent person but you can get sucked into this completely delusional uh, dangerous basically cult
0: and it becomes a cult of personality and where you have any sort of cult and people have you know there are people that will at one time I'm sure as we all know looking at the history of religion you studied it I studied it there Christians themselves were cultists and they had mm-hmm. many variations, and they didn't talk a lot about it in the middle of the town square, let's put it that way. So when you have cults, you have secrecy, and people do what they do in the shadows, sometimes out of sheer necessity, the need for survival. But also there are people who know how to exploit that secrecy in order to work their own agendas. And we run up against them, and we're right there. We look down. Those are our feet in our sandals. We've got to decide what to do about that. This is the great existential problem of daily living, it seems to me, John, that wherever you are, there you are, and you've got to deal with it and be mindful, because if you aren't mindful, sooner or later, there's a price to pay. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And um, that's why, to me, also one of the, the foundational teachings in every credible spiritual tradition I know, is the importance of truth and honesty. Because if you're not living in truth, if you're not seeing things as they are, then you're living in some form of delusion, and there are those who will exploit that and just keep sucking you deeper and deeper into more and more delusion. And, um, you know, I think of, I was talking about cults earlier today. Is that, you know, if you think about the classic case of Jim Jones, you know, and getting his thousand or more uh, devotees to commit suicide. And um, because they didn't want to face being wrong. They didn't want to face. I think about the Dalai Lama, uh, one time he said something, he said, the human mind is so very, very tedious. <laughs> and, you know, it really is. It's You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about meditation practice is that it allows us to see how our mind works. And I, I think what the Buddha pointed out 2,500 years ago was that... Um, you know, on the surface, we're all different, but in our core, our true nature is the same. And it's also true that our minds, although we're very different on the surface, our minds work in much the same way. And that really hasn't changed in 2,500 years. So the human mind uh, is our, our most wonderful servant, And it can be our most ruthless master. And it's our choice, again, as to how we want to use it. You know, I love meditation because... I'll say to people sometimes coming to meditation for the first time, imagine that if you do this practice, as you would do any practice, if you wanted to learn to be a weightlifter or you wanted to learn to be a musician, you have to practice. And when you practice, this practice of meditation gives you the ability to control your mind rather than being controlled by it. So just imagine as an example that um, how many of us have experienced being awake all night because we're upset about something or worried about something or angry about something. We can't go to sleep and get the rest we need because our mind is so agitated. And, you know, I've said meditation actually if you do it in practice over time will give you the ability to be able to say I'm not gonna think about that right now I need to go to sleep <laughs> you know? what a nice ability
0: <laughs> yes it is John, John it's thank time you. for us to leave let's hope that visit number 11 comes up very soon because we always learn from you and it's all about life and it's all about heart and it's all about love Keep on doing what you do. You bless the world, John Welshans.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Gary and Suzanne, wonderful to be with you.
2: All right. Stay tuned now. for the Christine Upchurch show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience. And after that, American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mann We're going
0: to hit the road. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is AM 1150, Seattle's home for alternative talk. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.